Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Sean Decatur, president of Kenyon College and a proud City Club supporter. I am pleased to introduce today's speaker, professor of higher education policy and sociology at Temple University and the founding director of the Hope Center for College, Community and Justice, Dr. Sarah goldrick Robb. The mounting cost of higher education has dominated the public conversation for some time. Rising tuition and subsequent student loan debt have many Americans questioning the true value of a college degree. But today's speaker has a different perspective, one that goes beyond the hard costs of a degree. Dr. Goldorf-Robb argues that college students are faced with the new economics of higher education. And in this new era, deep cuts in funding to colleges and universities have led to mounting tuition prices while federal financial aid remains stagnant. These changes have led to more than just a greater student loan burden. For many students, it means food and housing insecurity and inability to pay for health care, and in some cases, even homelessness. Dr. Goldegrab, a self-described self scholar activist, has dedicated her career to conducting research on and proposing solutions to the challenges facing college students. The Chronicle of Higher Education calls her a, quote, defender of impoverished students and a scholar of their struggles. I count myself among the admirers of her work. Uh, I confessed to her a little bit early that I consider myself a super fan of her work. <laughs> uh, and I've learned a great deal from her writings. Dr. Goldrick-Grubb combines data-driven analysis with skillful capturing of the human dimensions and impacts of education policy, resulting in a powerful and passionate case for meaningful reform. The granddaughter of one of the first women to complete a journalism degree from Northwestern University, she was drawn to sociology after her, own, after her own experiences with struggles of higher education's affordability and the inequality she encountered while researching community college funding. Today, she's a professor of higher education policy and sociology at Temple, a best-selling author of a book, Paying the Price, College Costs, Financial Aid, and the Betrayal of the American Dream, and a researcher whose 2009 Brookings Institution report, Transforming America's Community College, influenced elements of President Barack Obama's American Graduation Initiative. She is also the founding director of the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice, a nonprofit action research center fixed on making higher education more affordable, equitable, and accessible. The work of the Hope Center and Dr. Goldrick-Grubb's research on food insecurity among college students inspired the documentary film, Hungry to Learn, produced by Soledad O'Brien and released last year. Dr. Goldrick-Grubb is the recipient of numerous awards, including the William T. Grant Foundation's Faculty Scholars Award, the American Education Research Association's Early Career Award, and the Carnegie Fellowship. She was named one of the top 50 people shaping American politics by Politico Magazine in 2016. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dr. Sarah Goldrick-Grubb. Good afternoon. 
Thank you all so much for having me here today. I've had a chance to learn more about the history um, of this place, and I'm even more honored to, to be asked. I'm also really honored to be here with all of you in the room, especially um, students who are both undergraduates and high school students and so many educators. And I'm also really excited about what the conversation must be like online right now. And I hope that that will continue. Um, I want to take you back for a moment uh, to think about American higher education, and I'm going to ground that in my first couple of years teaching as a college professor. I graduated in 2004 from the University of Pennsylvania where I had done a degree in sociology. One of the things we don't talk a lot about in higher education is that part of the pathway towards the professoriate is learning how to do great research, but it's not always about learning how to be a great teacher. And I was in my first couple of years teaching at this great institution, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, when in one of my sociology classes, a student fell asleep. Now, I'm sure some of you have had this experience before, perhaps. I can't be the only one who has watched someone doze off. Um, and as, I, as I, had, I watched it occur, you know, I was struggling with what to do with it. Now, I have to admit that my first instinct was to feel ashamed. My first instinct was to wonder if, in fact, I wasn't a very good teacher, that I hadn't had enough training, and that maybe I needed to do better. So I turned to Amazon, as one does, and purchased about a dozen books on how to teach. <laughs> Being a new tenure-track professor, I did not really have time to do most of that reading, but I frantically skimmed for ways to engage my students. And I tried different techniques. But wouldn't you know, about a month later, she fell asleep again. <laughs> and this time I had a different perspective on the problem. I had been at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for a while now, and I knew about our football games and the parties that happened afterwards. And I decided that somehow it had continued for her, and so the night before my class, which was on a Tuesday, she was in fact drunk, okay? <laughs> So that was the assumption that I was making. And you know, I was passing judgment on her, and so I was rather stern when I approached her after class and said, please come see me in office hours. A term that we now know most first-generation students, they don't even know what it means. It sounds very mysterious. And so she came as required to my office hours in my office, and I I saw her at the door and she was hesitating to come inside and I said, just come in and sit down. And she sat down and she said, I don't know why I'm here. And I said, well, you've been sleeping in my class. You know, I said, again, filled with um, indignation. She looked at me and the tears came quickly. And at first I thought I had just caught her. But it wasn't that I had caught her. It's that I had embarrassed her. And I had embarrassed her because the truth was that my class started at 9 a.m. And this young woman was paying for college by working the graveyard shift the night before my class, stocking shelves at the local grocery store. She got off work at 8 a.m. She was exhausted. She was trying her best to pay for college. Now, she was a not so low income, but sort of lower middle class student who got a little bit of financial aid, a lot of loans, and was just working to make ends meet. And you know, she was smart, because students who work the graveyard shift are able to, at least in theory, attend class during the day, 
and they earn a little more on an hourly basis. It's also easier to get the job. There are fewer people who are able or interested in working at night, for example, because they have childcare responsibilities. They can't get somebody to cover their kids. So she was doing a highly rational thing from her perspective, but of course, falling asleep in the class she was paying for didn't make much sense. After the tears stopped, I asked her, there, I said there had to be a better way. And she walked me through her financial aid package. I didn't actually need to take her through her budget. She knew it intimately. She knew her expenses. She knew how she was scraping to get by. What she wanted to know is if I had any other kind of job to offer her. Now, the truth is, I had no idea. But professors at research universities sometimes do have the ability to create jobs using what's called work-study money, leveraging our research grants. And I had just gotten one. So the great thing was I was able to say to her, look, if you agree to quit that job, I will offer you enough paid employment. It'll be on campus, and you'll become my research assistant. And we did it. And it worked. She not only graduated successfully from my class, she graduated from college. She went on and got a master's degree in education policy. And she's been gainfully and happily employed for years. She even now has two children. This was fixable. But it taught me a ton. Because how often do these students fall asleep in class and no one asks why? How often do these students fall short and we wonder whether or not they're sufficiently motivated or even sufficiently sober enough to take in the class? And how often do we actually have the resources ourselves to be able to leverage to solve the problem? The answer is not very often. I now understand that I was at an exceptionally wealthy institution relative to most of American higher education. If I had been at Lorraine County Community College, I would not probably have had those research dollars. And their work-study budget would have been far less, even though they have so many more students facing financial need. Students are literally being punished for coming to college, doing what we told them is the best thing that they can do, whether it's to climb out of poverty or whether it's to keep themselves from ever falling into poverty. They are coming at a time when they are absolutely right that society has given them very few alternatives. We can debate whether college should be for all or not. I'm not saying it isn't possible to find a job without a college degree. You can. But what the numbers are showing is that it's about one in five decent jobs right now. And that number keeps going down. So if you're playing the odds and it's your kid, or it's somebody in your community, or it's your mom who's going to go and get that degree, the odds are pretty good that they are seeing those numbers. And they understand they're not going to be able to feed their families. They're not going to be able to ensure that things are OK on a daily basis if they don't get those degrees. Now, we therefore frame college as the great investment. And the fact that we frame it as the great investment helps us to justify our focus on giving people loans rather than grants for higher education. Back in the 1970s, after we had just created the federal Pell Grant program, a program that had tremendous ambition. You know, I, I was told that Bobby Kennedy has stood in this place, right? Bobby Kennedy knew people like Claiborne Pell. Senator Claiborne Pell created the Pell Grant program with the ambition that anybody should be able to get a college degree without it being contingent on their family income. 
He wanted to break the link. Remarkably, he thought a single grant could do it. He thought that we would size up your need, we would cover that need with a grant, and magically, you'd get a degree. He wasn't wrong to think that. Where he was wrong and where Congress at the time was wrong was to think that a single grant program distributed as a voucher to students would be able to hold together a coalition, not just of federal policymakers, but also of state policymakers and of institutional leaders and of communities across the country to all agree to invest sufficiently together in higher ed. That isn't what happened. Today's Pell Grant is a small shadow of what it used to be. Okay. The program was supposed to cover 100% of, of going to a public college, university, whether two or four year. Today it covers about 60% of attending a public college at a four year level, and about, I'm sorry, at the two year level, and about 30% of attending it at the four year level. So it is no longer the case that we can say, fill out the FAFSA, you'll get the Pell Grant and things will be okay. Instead, we have shifted to a strategy that actually has been in place for a very long time. A strategy that says, look, if you want to invest in college, there is a payoff for you. So a loan is worth it. And we have essentially privatized the financing system. We've said to individuals, take it, you'll get a degree, and you'll be able to repay it. But we're living in a society right now where that payoff, it doesn't come immediately. It does come. I mean, listen, it, it arrives. But I know I have some folks here, and there are folks all over the country, who graduate 21, 25, 27 years old, and they think they're going to see the return to higher education immediately. And guess what? You might be as old as 40, right, or 50, before that actually happens. That's the point at which you're going to see the difference between yourself and that person who didn't go on to college. And you can't wait that long because your loan payments are due. And as people are making loan payments, we're starting to see not only the consequences of the challenges of financially paying during college, but also the consequences afterwards. And the real crisis, the deepest crisis, is for the large number of people who take out the loans during college and still find it's not enough money to get through school. So they leave in debt with no degree. Doing that at this moment, it's devastating. It's literally rolling back people's ambitions. It is causing them to question the very value of higher education itself. If your aunt or cousin or mom tried college and left after a year or two because she couldn't pay her rent and go to school, she's not real likely to be someone who says to you, yeah, this will really work out for you. She is somebody who really might say, maybe this isn't the only path, and try to direct you elsewhere. The problem is that there's almost nowhere else to turn. So even talented, hardworking students with great K-12 preparation are falling short. And I want to define what I mean by falling short. There are a lot of different variations. So there is a student, for example, who you know, is in college, and they are paying their rent, and they have enough to eat every day, but sometimes the instructor passes out the reading list and there's a book on there and it's going to cost more than they have. So they're going to school without sufficient materials. Right? They're going to go to the class and listen to the lecture and they're not going to have read the book. That's one variation of falling short. 
But what my team has uncovered and has been working on since 2008 is a deeper issue. We're finding that students, even after financial aid, even after working, are falling so short on money to cover their bills. This is the real unmet need, not the need that's officially listed on the financial aid package. The real need is often another 10 grand deeper. These students are ending up food insecure, which means they don't have sufficient access to affordable food to eat every day per their needs. Housing insecure, which means that they are at risk of losing the stable and an affordable place where they live, or even homeless. Now, when we first saw this, we heard about it from an individual student, and we really weren't sure if this was just one sad story. You know, you read in the newspaper about the homeless teen who makes it to college, and you got to wonder, how often does that happen, right? So like any good scientist out there, we went out and did survey research to see what we could find out. And what we found out really took us aback. This problem is incredibly widespread. Any time that a college actually allows for their students to be assessed, and I mean assessed with validated instruments, gone to every student so that they can answer the questions if they care to, we learn that at least a third of American college students, especially those in the public sector, are short on food. And that number can go as high as close to 50% for students at community colleges. The number of housing insecure students seems to even exceed the number of food insecure students. And the number of homeless students, by which I mean people who do not have an adequate, reliable, secure place to live, is exceeding 10 to 15% at some of our institutions, and at our community colleges can go as high as 20%. These students are very unlikely to learn the skills and material that they need to get through the rest of their lives if this is the condition that they're facing. And it is no wonder that even students who know exactly what they want to study, who know why they want to study it, who love the material, who love learning, are dropping out. They are living a life in college that is entirely focused essentially on money. We try to get them to see the material, and they just see the lack of money in their life. And it plays out with severe stress. That stress can literally get under their skin. That stress, science has shown, reduces what we call executive functioning, right? The part where you're able to kind of think about long-term consequences, the part where you're able to make lists of the things that you've got to do the next day. They do those things, but they do them while sleep-deprived. And so it just doesn't work. So if this is the problem, the question really then is what are we going to do about it? And for the last five years in particular, I've had the great privilege of traveling all over this country and being invited to campuses to see how they are working on these challenges. There's some good news and there's some bad news. The good news is that I think American higher education is finally starting to realize what K-12 has known for a while. You would be hard pressed to find a school teacher or a principal who thought we should cut the national school lunch program. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't think that it's been important that we put supports in there for homeless college, or sorry, homeless uh, K-12 students, right? These things are widely understood as being critical to helping students get through high school. 
and higher ed is starting to ask for those things. We've also seen a proliferation of campus food pantries. There is an organization called the College and University Food Bank Alliance, KUFBA. And KUFBA now boasts more than 800 members. Now for those of you, you know, many people don't really realize how many colleges there are in the United States. So we talk about 100 of them, and there are more than 4,000. So when you think about the 800 number, I do want you to consider that there are still a lot of institutions that are not even having campus food pantries. But I think the fact that there are 800 colleges and universities with campus food pantries does say something. The problem is that they're trying to address these issues at a time of exceedingly scarce resources for higher ed. They're not just facing the budget cuts, which a lot of us understand now, I think better than ever, have come from choices that are being made by state legislators. But they're also facing de facto cuts that have occurred in the federal budget, where we have, for example, made changes to key supportive programs like the SNAP program. SNAP used to be known as food stamps. SNAP is something that you think people are allowed to turn to based on their income if they're falling short of food. What most of us didn't realize is that while they were reforming that program, they put some things in that make it harder for students to actually get the help. So one of the things that that piece of legislation says is essentially college students are not eligible. Except then it says, but. Now this is not how you write a policy if you want people to get help, right? You say college students are eligible and. But the but is then a whole series of conditions that if the student might meet this condition or that condition, maybe they then can get access. The result of this complex way that we've written this is that very few students who are food insecure are actually connecting to the benefits that they need. And the rules actually say that if they are an able-bodied adult who does not have dependents, there are no kids, then they have to meet a work requirement. The work requirement is 20 hours a week, and college does not count as work. Now, working during college is not a bad thing. Okay, I'm going to say that again, because I think we've demonized it in a way that makes it sound like you just, you're going to drop out if you work during college. No, sometimes working during college means that you eat every day. The problem we have right now is not that people shouldn't work during college and that they don't want to work during college. It's that working during college doesn't work. You can't get enough hours now from the employers. Places like Target and others, look, they offer college students a lot of jobs, but they also change their hours all the time. Students go from semester to semester and their schedule changes and then they find that they can no longer get the amount of work that they're actually gonna need. They try to pair up maybe two different jobs, maybe three, and then you add in the commuting time and the commuting costs and students are knocked out. So while saying you should work 20 hours a week might not sound like the end of the world, actually working during college and all of the additional logistics that come with getting and keeping the job does deter success. The idea that college doesn't count as work, well, that seems to be written by somebody who has never been to college these days. Okay? <laughs> college is a lot of work. And it's all kinds of work that we employers, and I myself count myself as an employer now, I have a lot of employees, we require in college the things that employers value, right? We require you to learn how to communicate. We require you to learn how to ask questions, right? We require you to think critically. College is work. 
The fact that we've cut students out of so many federal programs at a time when financial aid is falling short makes things all that much more difficult. You live in a city that seems to get this, and you have amazing people around you, like LeBron James, who definitely seems to get this. You know, he understands that people are humans, and if you're going to get them through education, we've got to begin to address their basic needs. So what we need to do now is we need to shift what it means to do the work of higher education, to focus on being student ready. We talk all the time about whether students are college ready. Are we, as institutions and as a society, ready for today's college students? I think that we created a college for all culture, but we didn't create a financing system that enables students to succeed. And we're paying the price. This is achievable. It means doing a lot more than a campus food pantry, though. It means colleges having the time and space and impetus to connect the dots to their area's services. It means colleges having the time to sit down with the local housing authority and make sure that students who need affordable housing can qualify to get it. It means making sure that the local food bank recognizes supporting your students. It means taking a hard look at how you structure your campus meal plans to make sure that you're not making a buck off of students who miss the meal because they're at work. We can't make profit off of food and housing and higher education if it's going to reduce our retention and graduation rates. But that is a whole other way of looking at a budget, especially at a time of budget cuts. We also need to emphasize to students, every student, that asking for help to get your education is a good thing. It is a strong thing. It is not something to be ashamed of. Students who are wealthy and go to places like Harvard get help every single day. They don't even have to put their hands up to ask for it. People bring it to them and ask, how can we help you? We need to be able to distribute support to students without them having to cry out and say how much pain they're in. Because when they have to do that, the most ashamed and stigmatized among them, and I'm going to be honest, that includes a lot of men who find this so painful, you know, that it is so outside the norm for them to not have their basic needs met. They feel so ashamed. They don't even come to places like campus food pantries. They don't seek the emergency aid. They just leave. And then they try to get through the rest of their lives without college degrees. It doesn't work. We have to invest not only to deal with Band-Aid solutions right now. Things like emergency aid, it's really critical at this moment. We can't let another student become homeless because they couldn't cover their utility bill. You got to do it. But we also got to prevent these emergencies in the first place. We need to go and push our state legislators to invest in higher education like it matters. We need to go and push our federal government to talk about holding our states and our institutions accountable for becoming student ready. If you say high, you want high graduation rates, you're only going to get them by meeting students' basic needs first. And I think that's going to take all of us. It's going to require us to look beyond what we do right now. We lament the rising price of college. We say, the tuition costs so much. What are these colleges doing? And then we go and we invest in our 529. It's fine. Invest in your 529. Maybe it will help. 
But I gotta tell you, the far more effective thing you can do is to have dialogue about how to fix this problem at a policy level. And that includes voting. And it includes making higher education a voting issue. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but boy, we are having a robust conversation, finally, about higher education plans. And if you think healthcare is complicated, higher ed's even more complicated. So let's treat it like it matters. The return on investment in higher education is unparalleled. That doesn't just come in terms of whether people bring home more money in their own pockets. It leads to healthier, happier communities. We don't talk about that as much because it's harder to quantify. And in this country, if you can't count it, it doesn't matter. But by the way, we could count those benefits. We have better administrative data sources than we've ever had before. If we cared enough to actually measure the return to college in terms of reduced healthcare spending, reduced entry or repeated entry into the criminal justice system, right? reduced emergency room visits, we could. And we would see that there is almost nothing better than expanding education. We did this in the 20th century. We said that it didn't make sense for people to stop with an elementary education and we pushed for a secondary education. I think there are very few of us who would take that decision back. So I am so delighted to be here and spur a conversation and deepen a dialogue about how we're going to do this together so that we can all make progress. Thank you. Look forward to your questions. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club and a proud member, and today we're enjoying a forum with Dr. Sarah Goldrick-Robb, Professor of Higher Education Policy and Sociology at Temple University and the founding director of the HOPE Center for College, Community, and Justice. We're about to begin our Q&A with the audience, and we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream or radio broadcast on 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content and programming coordinator, Bliss Davis, and City Club intern, Remy Orasanya. May we have our first question, please? Thank you for your speech this afternoon. My name is Aaron Jeter. I brought some of my students here from Solon High School, and we had a lot, uh, we appreciate a lot that you had to say. My question for you, uh, Forbes wrote uh, an article about three years ago about the rising tuition prices, and they, they titled the article Bureaucrats in Buildings, mm -hmm. and they said that there's often more administrators on campus than ever before, yeah. and a lot of people don't know exactly what they are doing in addition buildings and there seems to be an arms race to bring students on campus and there's all these funds that are being raised and as a, and as a direct result students are paying the price can you address that and you know how sure. should students look at that thank you yeah so overpaid administrators and by the way sometimes they say faculty too right <laughs> wasting time and lavish buildings if only it were that simple I, that's a story that sells it also fits a narrative um, that you know, tells us that, in fact, it must be waste. It couldn't be disinvestment. Can you find places in this country where, yes, there are, the number of administrators has expanded greatly, and they're not doing much for students? I'm sure. It's not the majority of American higher education. Most of American higher education, to the extent that they have expanded people in what we call the administration, 
are there to provide student support services. We have people coming to college today who do not come from wealthy families. They do not have these helicopter parents that we keep talking about. I'm sure you've heard, right, that these, these parents are swooping in and making all the decisions for their child. Most people go to college very much on their own. They have no one to talk to. They need more people on campus, not less. And the other thing that has changed is the role of the faculty has shifted. Part of um, what has happened in a lot of different spaces for faculty is they've been asked to do a lot more jobs. And sometimes the effort has been to take some of the advising off of them and then move it to professional people who do advising for a living. And that can make sense because maybe the professor, like I said, I mean, I was trained as a sociologist. If you ask me for advising, I'm going to tell you to be a sociologist, right? Maybe you should have a professional advisor who knows about other fields, right? So that proliferation, for the most part, has been to meet the need. Sometimes it doesn't happen, and we should be honest that we have a role to play in this. So many of us, if we are talking especially to our own kids about where they're going to go to college, we do something like open the US News and World Report, and we turn to rankings. And we look at these rankings as if they tell us something about educational quality, except they don't. They mainly tell us about how many people the college turns away each year about how much money the college spends on certain things. The more research spending that's happening at institution, you rise in those rankings. Well, I gotta tell you, doing research at an institution doesn't mean they focus on undergraduate education. So institutions try to attract big name administrators, big name professors, et cetera, and we do cost more. But that's to rise in the rankings, not to do it for the student. If we wanna reject that, then we need to stop acting like those rankings should drive our college choices. For the most part, though, the, the good science that is out there when they try to adjudicate between different explanations for why the prices are rising say that, in fact, no, buildings have very little to do with it. Overpaid administrators or too many administrators have very little to do with it. What is mostly driving up the price that people are paying for college in terms of tuition is the fact that the states have withdrawn their support. So when a state went from saying, we will put in, out of every dollar it costs for higher ed, we'll put in 75 cents, you put in 25, and turned around and then said, no, you know what? We'll put in 50 cents, you put in 50. And then if you're Pennsylvania, where I am, oh, you know what? We'll put in a quarter, you put in 75. Guess what? You're saying the prices went up. By the way, the price of rent also goes up. The price of food goes up. The price of transportation goes up. The price of medical care goes up. And colleges don't get to say anything about that. So I think, unfortunately, there have been a number of columns and such. Um, I think that if you look at some of the affiliations of the people who do some of that work, you'll start to really see um, the agenda that they're pushing. I know that Penn State and Southern New Hampshire University made a deal where Southern New Hampshire will provide the computer programming, if you will, for Penn State, mm -hmm. so that you apply to Penn State, mm -hmm. Southern University, Southern New Hampshire does all the computer, and you get a degree from Penn State. Mm -hmm. Now, that means you do not have to be on campus. Mm -hmm. Your tuition is significantly less. Mm -hmm. So isn't the higher ed responding already? Mm -hmm. And some of the issues you're talking about are being cut 
because the cost is being cut? You know, it's interesting. Um, online education is, is not substantially cheaper. It's listed as substantially cheaper because the assumption that is made is that a student doesn't face the same living expenses because they don't have to leave their home. But the time that you have to invest in education often remains the same. That's one piece. But actually, what you're, what you're speaking to speaks to the larger issue I was talking about around state decision making. So Pennsylvania is a really good example of a state that has heavily disinvested from higher education. And it has left many of it, it, its institutions unable to really function properly. The institution you named happens to be one of the wealthiest in the state. Penn State's the one we all know, thanks to sports. But it isn't actually um, the most impoverished. The PASHI system, which is the state-supported higher education system, the one that um, has regional comprehensive institutions around the state, has been cut year after year after year. And what they noticed was they're having trouble, um, and, and the community colleges are also having trouble all over the state, providing students with enough support so that they can get their degrees. As a result, and as a result in terms of um, their ability to put together transfer arrangements between the two, they found students turning to online education, hoping it would cut their costs. Enter Southern New Hampshire University. Now, again, it's a Southern New Hampshire University, right? It's an online institution. It comes from New Hampshire. It is now here to solve the problem, it says. And students are walking over consumer choice, right? They're making these decisions. But let's be clear about why the decisions happened. Right? Those decisions to pursue Southern New Hampshire's education came because the state cut its public institutions. Okay? So we basically forced a choice. And then we turned around and said, well, it's what people want. Oftentimes what looks like a choice was not in fact a choice. It was the result of constrained decisions because you removed every other option. Second thing I just want to say quickly is that the evidence on online education does not show that it's very promising in terms of helping students learn or get degrees. You can replace some of in-person instruction with online, but it needs to be in a hybrid format. Online only education is leaving behind the people who most need higher education. The rural parts of Pennsylvania, we have 18 counties with no college at all. Those folks, to only offer them online education, especially given that they also have limited broadband, is to tell ourselves a story where we're making it okay for them, but really just to continue to leave them behind. So you can see the complexities here, and it is, it is a tough thing. Southern New Hampshire University is a not-for-profit. It's at least not a for-profit provider, which we have lots of concerns with. But nonetheless, we have to ask why Pennsylvania has essentially been opened for business to other institutions. Could you please address how what you've talked about might apply to immigrant, foreign-born mm -hmm. students, international students? Yeah. So, I mean, these are groups that are facing a variety of challenges right now. You know, one of the biggest challenges is that they're made to feel very vulnerable in the society. So we've actually had to do a lot of work in American higher education to keep reinforcing to students from other places that they are, in fact, welcome here. When students are scared to be on campus or let alone to be in this country, it is not likely to help them complete their degrees. But the other thing is they are eligible for a lot less in terms of supports. If you can't file a FAFSA, for example, the financial aid form, if you can't do it, you're not going to be able to get access to most of the financial things that you need. Now, I understand that we bring international students here based on having filled out a form that is supposed to suggest that they have the money to afford to be here. But 
let's be really honest, they face really strong incentives to just get here. We offer what looks like a great opportunity. They believe that if they can just manage to get enough money together for that first year that they'll somehow get through. Many of them are falling short. So it is not at all uncommon to find them among the food insecure students. We know that undocumented students are also facing these challenges and it's really a shame because the fact is the return on investment for even just us taxpayers is very high. If these folks are able to get degrees and you know, go on to um, you know, productive jobs and pay taxes. So it, it is unfortunate that we are moving away from a more inclusive environment where we can help people to get more um, education and we seem to be going in the opposite direction. Two questions. One, <clears throat> one of the great things the government did was a GI Bill. Can we learn from that? was so successful. Can we learn something from that, number one? Number two, in my experience, McGill, a great university in Canada, mm -hmm. is one-fourth the cost of our great universities. <clears throat> Could we learn from those two things? Yeah, well, of course we can learn. We can learn from other countries. We can learn from the ways that they have invested in higher education. Um, we do need to acknowledge that the scale of American higher education stands apart from anywhere else in the world. So we have expanded the number of people, the diversity of the people, right? We have said we want you to be able to come to college even if at 17 you didn't know you wanted to come to college. Even if 25 you didn't know you wanted to come to college, if you decide at 32 you want to go to college, we say you should come. And we say it because frankly there is an economic return to all of us for the person doing that. Um, we don't invest as if it mattered. To your first question, um, I hold this one very close to my heart because my 92-year-old grandfather benefited from the GI Bill. And I think that a large part of the reason why I do what I do today is that I grew up her hearing him talk about that. There's a wonderful book um, called From Soldiers to Citizens that I highly recommend that talks about the enormous returns. Uh, Suzanne Mettler is the author. She has traced over time the enormous returns to that investment. It, we, do, we can't pretend like it was fully equitable. Okay, there were, for example, people of color did not get as much access to the GI Bill as others did. But there is no question that there has been an intergenerational payoff. My grandmother was only willing to marry my grandfather because he got that college education. So thank you, GI Bill, I wouldn't be here. Let me tell you one other thing I learned in um, studying that GI Bill. Um, I talk a lot about the non-tuition expenses for college. And the fact is that the federal government has enshrined in legislation the meaning and importance of those other costs of attendance, right? The living pieces, the food and the housing. We've always acknowledged it's important. With regard to the GI Bill, when it was first passed, the living stipend associated with going to college was far too low. And the GI Bill, the GIs, sorry, came to Congress and said that. They said, we need more money to live on while we go to school, and they increased it. We can do this. I think we do have to level with ourselves that we view those GIs as more deserving. I think that we feel like they have done service and we will give them lots of things. Although we have not protected today's GIs in the same way and our vets right now are struggling with this GI Bill. In fact, the rates of homelessness among our student veterans are crushing. Do we know what to do though? Of course we do. We don't just measure this based on deservingness in terms of what you have done already, but in terms of what you will do. We know what happens, what people do when they get more education. 
They are more likely to become civically involved, right? They are more likely to volunteer. They are more likely to vote. I don't know what we're so afraid of. Can you comment on the possibility of directing more students into technical and trades rather than everyone needing to go to a university? Yeah. And, and what are some obstacles to that? Yeah, well, I mean, first let me underline what community colleges do, right? Half of all the work that community colleges do, and often more than half of the work, is technical education. It's vocational education. So I get this a lot. Why not trade school? Trade school is college now. And, you know, I don't know why that should surprise us so much. If you really understand what's happened in a lot of the trades, right, there's a lot of skills that are needed in these trades. We don't even fix a car today the way that we used to. It's a lot more complicated and you need to learn computers and such. Now, you know, we can talk about what's happened in high schools. We can talk about the fact that we don't spend as much time on vocational education necessarily in high school. But again, given all the things we need to cover with today's students, you know, I've got two school-aged kids and I've been learning a lot about all the stuff they have to do in school now that they did not have to do. They didn't have to teach me how to use the internet properly. I mean, there are so many things that schools have to cram into those 12 years. I think it makes sense that maybe they need a 13th and 14th year, at least even to enter the trades. There is, there is a problem in our narrative, though, where a lot of people read the word college to not mean anything inclusive of vocational education. And there is a problem with saying to students the only legitimate pathway is the four-year school. There is a problem with those who are counseling students to avoid the community college because they don't see high rates of success. That is a function largely of two things. The community colleges, they take everybody, right? Most of those schools with really high graduation rates, they either turn away the majority or they find ways to turn away even once you're there. The second thing is you get what you pay for. There is more investment of our taxpayer dollars going to Princeton today than there is going to the New Jersey County Community Colleges. Okay? We get what we pay for. If you surround a student with a $60,000 or $70,000 investment every single year, or if you're Amherst, $100,000 a year, or you surround them with an investment of three to five grand, you know what you're going to get. So I think instead of telling people to not go to the nearest place to their homes and telling them they should turn away from the community colleges, we should all lean into making sure that everybody has an affordable, high-quality, well-invested community college education available to them. And if that makes sense for them, yes, do two years there, maybe three if you have to, and then go and go on and get that bachelor's if that's what you need. And maybe you don't. Maybe you do take that associate degree. Maybe you take the certificate. And you go work. And then at 32, 33, you want to get a raise. And so you go and you get the next part. That's fine. There's stackable credentials. There are career pathways. We've been working on that stuff for 30 years. Again, we just haven't invested in it like it's worth it. Where's the next question? Hi. Hi. Um, OK. I come from a world of contract management services. Huh. And this may sound really awful, but we approach our contracts for a business the same way we do for schools. And contracts are written 
with the idea that a certain projected amount of those dining dollars yes. will never be Used. taken back in. Yes. And that is the profit model. Now, as long as you have a profit model of contractors coming in to universities, they want to make money. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's ethical or not. My question is, what can we do to work with the business community mm -hmm. where more and more and more of these services are contract services mm -hmm. to be on the same ethical playing field of the objective is not to make money off that student, mm -hmm. but to get that student through school so they can go into the business where you charge mm -hmm. them at that cafeteria. Yep. yep. So, you know, one of the things... <laughs> One of the things that I'm proud of with regard to how my team has evolved over time is that we've moved beyond um, just focusing on what higher education knows and can do. Right? We've expanded the number of partnerships that we have. And in particular, we have leaned into more working with the private sector to understand what this looks like from their vantage point and what role they have to play in solving these problems. And so five years ago, if you had asked me um, do you think you'll ever uh, be funded by Aramark? I would have said no, right? I would probably be more likely to go protest outside Aramark, right, and join the students on their hunger strikes. I am now partially funded by Aramark, and I'll tell you why. Because they can be and intend to be part of the solution. But here's how this is going to work, right? You're right, they make a contract with a school. The client is the institution. The client is not the student. Let's be very clear, right? In, in their higher education business, they need to go get more colleges and universities. What the colleges and universities are telling the food service providers is that they want contracts that offer food that is good, affordable, but affordable is down the list, you know, meets all of these different demands students have, you know, gluten-free, vegan, right, all the different things. And that, yes, does generate some additional revenue. Why do colleges and universities look at their food service for revenue? Because revenue has been cut in so many other places. They do the same thing on the housing side. They say they want it to be affordable. But again, these other things are a priority. Places like Aramark respond by giving them what they asked for. Okay? Now, like you said, when students miss meals, that goes directly into the profit margin. Students often don't realize that. Some of those students said, I'm missing meals, and I think my friends who don't have enough to eat should get my meals. This happened at UCLA many years ago now, and they started to say, you know what, I'm going to give you my extra swipes. And so they started giving them to each other, and they got in trouble with UCLA because it cuts into the profit margin. Luckily, that person, Rachel Sumac, who was doing that work, decided that nevertheless she would persist. And today, Rachel is CEO of Swipe Out Hunger, which has, all over the country, pushed the agenda to say, we will redistribute those swipes. Students lead it. These are student-driven chapters. And they're challenging it. But what's going to have to happen here is that colleges, it's not that colleges are not going to still look to make money. They need to look at their retention and graduation rates to make money instead of the food. And when students eat every day, they're more likely to be retained and graduate. And in turn, they will then say to the food service provider, here's what we need to do. Right? Something's got to give. We have to make this more affordable for our students. We don't want the missed meals in the profit margin. And we are going to have to figure out what it means to offer sufficient choice to respond to consumer demand 
while keeping things affordable. One possible option is an expansion of the National School Lunch Program to higher education, which could offer some subsidies to these providers, which by the way would also subsidize agriculture. You see how we can go from just saying they need to eat and just viewing it as students are missing meals and that's sad to actual solutions, right? It's going to take everybody. So I'm actually really proud of the fact that you know, when somebody invests in you or donates to you, they let you in the room for these conversations. Because we want to talk to Chartwells and we want to talk to Sodexo and we also want to talk to the federal government and the Ag Committee about this stuff, right? And I'm sure there's 10 other solutions we haven't even come up with yet that people are working on that we could advance. And I think that if we lean into that, we're going to get this done. And in 10 years, we're going to drive down food insecurity. It's going to exist at some level. But we're not going to see anywhere near the numbers we see today. I'm from Solon High School, and um, with the current Democratic primaries and like similar events occurring, something that comes up really often is this idea of like complete student debt forgiveness. Uh -huh. And is something like this ever plausible, like even on a more local level, or is the path forward definitely like supplementing current students with helping pay for books or meals more? Okay, so look, the first thing I gotta say is anything is possible if we all want to do it. I mean. We're, we're very good at even moonshots in this country. Like, we can do things. The, the question has become a political question, right? Can you knit together a constituency of enough people that something could get through Congress? Or maybe it doesn't require Congress. To, your mileage may vary on that one. Um, here's, here's, where, here's where I'm going to go. In the interest of all sorts of things, in the interest of the economy, in the interest of economic and racial justice, right? We have done tremendous damage to a lot of people with this debt. There are more people in crisis than we're willing to admit. You do not have to be defaulted on your student loan to be in crisis thanks to your student loan. Okay, that's the only official measure though, is delinquency and default. You could be not eating every day and making your student loan payment and we're gonna say, well, you're fine. But I wanna make sure that whatever we do with that debt, we also make sure we prevent the future debt. So if students are going into debt and they're dropping out of college because they don't have enough to eat, we better address that problem or we're just gonna be back in the same place. So the question that I have for any of these folks is can you give us a plan that allows us to both deal with past debt, as much of it as we can actually get done, while preventing future debt? And can you give us a plan that will actually get done, right? Because you know what we don't have time for? 30 more years of saying we're going to double the Pell Grant. We have done the opposite of double the Pell Grant. right? We need a plan for 2020 that deals with the pain of the people who are in all kinds of trouble and deals with all of you. You know, I got a 10-year-old. She asks me every day, is college free yet? No pressure, Mom. <laughs> right? We can do this. It's just a question of who's going to make it a priority, and how many of us are going to make it a priority, and whether you're going to go vote. Thank you so much.
Today at the City Club, we've been hearing from Dr. Sarah Goldrick-Robb. She's professor of higher education policy and sociology at Temple University and the founding director of the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice. Support for student participation in City Club forums comes from the Shar and Chuck, Fam Chuck Fowler Family Foundation and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from donors you'll find listed in our program today. We're happy to have all of you here. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you, Dr. Goldrick-Robb. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club, with special thanks to City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.